Okay, thank you, Chris. What an introduction that was. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Jimmy. I am an alcoholic. I'm trying to find myself on this screen here. Oh, there I am. Um, it's customary where I come from to, uh, to let you know that I have a home group. It's called the Design for Living Group on the Jersey Shore. Um, I have a sponsor. I have a service sponsor. Apparently, I uh, need a lot of adult supervision. Sponsor a lot of guys, but most importantly, I've been sober since my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was on March 28, 1987. So uh, grateful to be alive, grateful to be sober, grateful to be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous, and grateful to be with you guys today. And uh, just to give you a little visual where I come from, I'm the uh, Jersey guy from the East Coast. Uh, I live 60 miles south of New York City. Uh, I live at a place where there's, the locals like to call it the Irish Riviera. Uh, members of Alcoholics Anonymous like to call it cirrhosis by the sea. Now, if you heard that line, I stole it, but you know how we are in AA. If uh, you said it three times or you hear it three times, it's your line now. So, uh, but I'm just grateful to be here. Ralph, thank you so much for the invite. Amy, uh, you're like a little sister to me. You know, we've spoken together so many times and uh, you're not a Pisces, but you sure drink like a fish. That's for sure. So, uh, and I look forward to the rest of the speakers today. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of jacked up right now. I'm charged up. Amy got me going. I'm, I'm just I'm ready to go. So who knows what's going to come out, but we'll see. Um, when Ralph sent me the flyer or when I saw the flyer for the first time, uh, you know, I had this flashback. And some of you guys who were around when the, uh, when the pandemic hit, when we first hit, and when, uh, you know, there was no meetings, there was no, everything was shut down. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, like April or March of 2020, uh, people were putting on these uh, these uh, conferences like this, you know, uh, Saturday, Sunday things. It was a thousand people, you know, and you had to get on early. Can you imagine you had to come to a meeting earlier? There was a time that you had to get to a meeting early, but you had to get on early for these uh, these big meetings, a thousand uh, people meetings. And on this particular conference, I was asked to speak. It was uh, April of 2020. It was called the Hotland Speaker Slam. And a bunch of my, uh, and I say this lovingly, my hillbilly redneck friends from the Midwest and the South that asked me to speak on this, uh, on this conference. And my topic that day was uh, the new flying blind period. And as I got ready, as I prayed on this thing, this is one of the first conferences I ever did on, online. And, you know, believe me, probably like a lot of us, I was 100% convinced that there's no way in hell that God's showing up in a little box. There is no way that that's going to happen. There is no connection. There is no feeling. There's no skin in the game. This is horrible. That's how I felt when this all started, right? But there was a friend of mine that was on that conference that day. His name is Mike M. A lot of you guys know him from Brunswick, Maryland. And Mike's not an archivist, but you know Mike has a good understanding of our AA history. And he was doing a presentation called "The Four Founding Moments." And uh, you know, after he went through the first three, I don't even remember what they were. I've heard it a lot, but I don't remember. But the fourth founding moment was when Dr. Bob met Bill, or Bill met Dr. Bob. You know, and he went through the whole historical thing of that. Uh, you know, uh, Cyberlina State spending that, you know, 15 minutes turns into a few hours. I mean, the, he went through the whole thing. But as he got near the end of the presentation, Mike was talking about that last time that Bill Wilson met Dr. Bob. It was probably one of the most powerful things I've ever heard in my life. And though I read it in history, it's just the way that Mike was presenting this. And so Dr. So Bill Wilson goes out to Akron to see Dr. Bob for the last time. And he goes out there because he knows Dr. Bob's gonna die. But more importantly, he knew he had to get Dr. Bob's blessing on having this general service conference and turning our fellowship or turning our Alcoholics Anonymous over to the fellowship to our groups, right? And I'll butcher it trying to tell you the whole story, but I really like to, talk about what Mike said on that day. He said, a few hours later, I took my leave of Dr. Bob, knowing that the following week he was to undergo a very serious operation. Neither of us dared say what was in our hearts. We both knew that this might be the last decision that we would ever make together. 
and went down the steps and then turned in to look back. Bob stood in the doorway, tall and upright as ever. Some color had come back to his cheeks and he was carefully dressed in a light gray suit. This was my partner, the man with whom I never had a hard word. The wonderful old broad smile was on his face as he and almost jokingly said, remember, Bill, let's not louse this up. Let's keep it simple. I turned away. Unable to say a word. That was the last time I ever saw him. And Dr. Bob died the following Thursday. I remember looking at the screen like I'm looking at right now, and I could see all the guys that looked like me with glasses on, and they all had their glasses off. And I could see the tears coming down your face. I could see the woman taking the tissue out and wiping the tears away from their eyes. Now, I'm not sure if that's going to happen here today with all of us. But from my experience, what I found out about that day is that the power of God runs deep. That the grace of God is in all of us. And if we're sitting here today, stone cold sober, God is working in our life even without our permission. And see, there was another guy that was very important in our history that understood that on a visceral level, a deep, deep level. And what he said was this. The untapped bottle remains a symbol to the non-drinking alcoholic, at least to the alcoholic who has dried up in Alcoholics Anonymous. So long as it stands unopened, it represents drinks he has not taken and the good things of life he has found by not drinking. Yet now and then, a persevering soul tries to have both the figurative and the liquid contents of the bottle. He tries to make an impossible compromise. The attempt to make this kind of compromise is one of the most common causes of failure to get a safe hold in Alcoholics Anonymous. The majority who slip after periods of sobriety, having double-crossed themselves into thinking that somehow they could have the unopened bottle and drink it too, even though they have been in AA, going to meetings, following parts of the program, they have accepted it with reservations somewhere. But the key principle, which makes AA work, where other plans have proved inadequate is the way of life, the design for living. It proposes based upon the belief of the individual in a power greater than himself and the faith that this power is all sufficient to destroy the obsession which possessed him and was destroying him mentally and physically. The percentages of success in Alcoholics Anonymous has scored leaves no doubt that it's something more than we doctors can offer. It is, I am convinced, your second step. Once the alcoholic has grasped the second step, he will have no more slips. Obviously, this comes from Silkworth, right? This comes from a 1943, I believe, medical journal that or medical society talk that he gave that he put into the grapevine in 1945. You know, he's a non-alcoholic doctor who's worked with 50,000 drunks like us, right? Towns Hospital, Knickerbocker Hospital. And he's convinced that if we grab step two, and until that is done, we will not drink again. I read another medical journal, journal by him that he gave to a medical society in their 40s. And what he said in that one was this, for the alcoholic in AA who hasn't not fully accepted the second step and to practice these principles in all his affairs, that alcoholic still has a reservation and a lurking notion. He will drink again. So let's fast forward this to today. Let's fast forward this to now. 80 something years later on. 
is there any information we're missing on how to get sober and stay sober, right? All I need to do is to come to believe in a power greater than myself and have the faith that this power isn't sufficient to take away the drink and not only take away the drink problem, but to solve all my problems. I have a problem with that. I have a major problem with that. Matter of fact, it's a dilemma. And the dilemma is this, how am I gonna to come to believe in a power greater than myself and have faith in this God when I am riddled with shame, I am riddled with guilt, I am riddled with remorse, just to name a few things, right? Because I'm a believer, I'm a guy, I'm the type of guy, a lot like Amy, I'm just a guy that comes from the streets and I can fix myself. I don't need God's help. I don't need your help. I just have a little bit of a drinking problem right now, right? But you see, my ego is so big that if you ask me to speak on any subject, of course, I know all the answers to everything. So if you want me to speak on the second step, absolutely, I'll speak on step two. Now, I have no relationship with God, right? I can read what it says in the 12 and 12. I can tell some jokes if I need to. But I'll do a step two talk, and that's exactly what happened to me. 30-something years ago, I'm in this town, and I'm telling this, I'm giving a step two talk. And though I have no relationship with God, and though I'm paralyzed by everything that you say or how everyone sees me or feels about me, I could do a talk on step two. And at the end of that two, uh, end of that talk, what happened was everybody was shaking my hand, coming up, thank you, Jim, thank you, Jim, thank you, Jim. And all of a sudden, a guy, I'm six foot four, he was six foot four, he looked at me eyeball to eyeball and looked at me, didn't put his hand up to shake my hand, he just said, you're screwed, in a little bit saltier language. Uh, let me stop my clock or I'll be here for three days. But you see, when that guy said I'm screwed in a little bit saltier language, I wanted to start a fist fight in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I tell you that is because I don't know how to face resistance with no resistance. I don't know how to face confrontation without violence. I don't know how to have a healthy conversation with an adult human being at this point in my sobriety. Well, what happens to me is the grace of God. Because what happens is I step back and I look this gentleman in the eyes. I said, you're right. I need help. And I find myself in the summer of 1992 in this guy's apartment. And he's starting to give me the spiritual test. Now, you, many of you guys have heard me talk before, and I've said this story a thousand times. But I'm sitting on the Jersey side of the Hudson River overlooking Manhattan. And I'm looking, out over, I'm looking out the window and I could see New York City and this guy's peppering me with a few questions. First question he said to me was, Jimmy, how long could you hold your breath? How long can you be in a 12-step program and not work the 12 steps? Second question he asked me, what makes you alcoholic? Um, 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 the best I could stammer out of my mouth at that moment was, I drink too much. I had no idea what Amy talked about. I had no idea about the physical allergy. I had no idea about the mental obsession. Third question he asked me, what's my relationship with God look like? Well, I'm a Catholic. I used to say I'm a good Catholic, but I'm a Catholic who believes in God. But what does God have to do with any of this stuff that we're talking about today? And then he asked me a question that maybe some of you guys might not believe, but this is the way it was in my neighborhood in the 80s in Alcoholics Anonymous. He looked at me and said, where's your big book? And I looked at him and I said, What's a big book? Now, I'm sure it was a big book at a podium or a literature table or on someone's table or someone's chair. But we were never encouraged to open up the book back then in my neighborhood. Meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, where I come from, were speaker meetings, discussion meetings, talked about the 12 and 12, but we never discussed about the big book. It wasn't until the early 90s when Joe and Charlie came through the Northeast that a lot of us started to get jacked up about Alcoholics Anonymous in the 12 steps through the process of the, of, of the big book. Now, I'm not embarrassed by my answers. I'm probably more embarrassed to let you know that I was five years sober at the time, dying from something I didn't even know I was dying from, untreated alcoholism, living under that delusion that abstinence is the solution to my problem. And then he asked me a consideration, Jim, if AA works, why do you have so many problems? Because I'm not really working AA. 
I'm living under this delusion that if I just don't drink, everything's going to be okay. If I don't drink, I'm going to get the job. I'm going to get the wife. I'm going to get the kids. I'm going to, you know, I have a long list of uh, cash and prices that I think is going to happen to me if I just don't drink. And sometimes that happens for some of us. But the truth of the problem, the truth of the matter was, I sat in this guy's apartment for many hours, and he talked to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the things that was very apparent was that I'm living a life of delusion. You'll hear this quite often that alcoholism doesn't come in a bottle, it comes in my mind. And my mind is filled with a lot of delusions. So that was one of the big ones. But here's another big delusion that I was living with. And that's that I have the power to change who I am. What happened on this afternoon was Bill painted me into the corner so far, not only about my drinking, but also about my behaviors because he was guaranteeing me they're both progressive. He painted me so far into the corner that I had no choice but to one of those two alternatives. Because that was the decision at some point. Jim, spiritual life, spiritual death, what are you going to take? And on that afternoon, what I realized about me, I was stuck in a trap that I couldn't get out of. And I'm sure some of you guys have been stuck in a trap that you couldn't get out of. And when we realize that we're stuck in that trap, you hear that sound, and that sound sounds something like this. Oh, crap. Oh, you know, a little bit salty language. But see, the kindness of strangers, and Amy talked about this, you know, the, he sat with me. He didn't just leave me hanging. He talked about me a lot, about a lot of things that day. One of the things he did was he picked up the big book and held it in his hand like this to me. He said, Jimmy, this book isn't designed for answers. It's a journey to God. And like I heard Amy say earlier on, I hear my sponsor, Bob and Sandy, when they did so many workshops, they would always say that the book's not the treasure, the book is the map to the treasure. But even though he told me that the book doesn't have the answers, what he really said to me was the journey will be, many things will be answered within the journey. And see, that sounded like a paradox, but that intrigued me. The book doesn't have the answers, but along this journey that we're on, a lot of things are going to be answered in my life. And he said, yes. I also found out on that day that nowhere in our literature does it say AA is about getting us to quit drinking. That might sound controversial. But the doctor's opinion in the first two chapters or three chapters say quite the opposite. You can't, you can't quit, Jim. Lack of power is your dilemma. You have no mental defense against the first drink. Matter of fact, without a psychic change, you're pretty much well screwed. And see, what he told me was that AA is designed to introduce us to a power greater than ourselves, right? To have this psychic change, this personality change, this spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, whatever you want to call it. That's what AA is designed to do, to have a transformation from the inside to the outside. Like it talks about in step 10, the spirit, the spirit will flow into us and flow out to others. And see, if Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't provide that transformation, guess what? We're all dead men walking. Right? And so what he did to me or what he told me was we agnostic starts the wake up call. Realizing that I was going into step two, there was a lot of resistance. And the reason why I tell you that is because, you know, the human ego doesn't want to think that there's something greater than me that could solve all my problems. I really had to open my mind. And as I sat with Bill, he said something very simple to me. He said, Jim, all I'm asking you to do is to step into the unknown, to step into the mystery, right? To set aside everything you think you know about God, about everything really, right? To examine the contempt you have in your heart and your mind. Because most of your contempt, prior to information, is rooted in old ideas, prejudice, and some archaic belief system that you think is true. And as he started to tell me about that stuff, you know, uh, the door of the sick mind opens from the inside. All I needed to do was to be willing to open my mind to a new way. As he sat with me, this delusion, and one of the other delusions, I can never put words to it, 
wasn't until I did a workshop with my buddy Harold and he put a title on this delusion. Why would God ever help a guy like me? Now, yeah, I've made amends. I have, I, I, I've been given forgiveness. I have forgave others. I've worked the steps. I have sponsor. I sponsor a lot of guys. I do a lot of service work, on and on and on. But there are days, there are days still, deep down inside, there's a 10-year-old kid in there, a 12-year-old kid, who still believes the lie. Why would God help a guy like me? Why would God help a guy like me? And you know what, that is such a ridiculous statement. And as we heard earlier in the first talk, you know, we live life forward, we understand the backwards. When I look back at my life, my early life, my whole life, my drinking career, my sobriety, God has been showing up, helping me all the time. I just can't see it at times. Because again, I'm under the delusion that I'm fixing me. When in the truth of matter is, God's always been helping a guy like me. I grow up in this, in this house. There's violence at times. There's drinking at times. I'm under the perception that alcohol equates to freedom. Alcohol equates to fun. Alcohol equates to a good time. I see the elders in my uh, family. I see my neighbors. I live in a very blue collar neighborhood where the only requirement for membership is five or more kids. There's always a party going on. And as a young kid, you know, this disease of perception I suffer from as a young kid, what do I see? I see King Alcohol. What I see is that you guys seem to be having a lot of fun with this drink. But I live with this guy, this guy called Dad. He's cunning, he's baffling, he's powerful. My dad gets violent at times. My dad comes home every day and he gets, my mom makes these two pictures, one called Martinis, the other one called Manhattans. And what I witness on a daily basis from the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old is the ease and comfort that comes at once by taking that first drink. And my old man would take that first drink and he'd become a different person, just like everyone on this call right now. There were those days. And those days look something like this. My dad would take that first drink and a tornado would show up, show up in my house. And all of a sudden the plates would be flying, the chairs would be flying, the, one of us young kids would be flying. And me and my two brothers and two sisters would get under the covers, wait for the tornado to roar through the house. And then when it was done, we'd come out to the living room and, hey mom, the wind stopped blowing. What's going on here? Nothing. So from a young age, and none of this makes me alcoholic, I don't think. But from a young age, I'm riddled with fear. Loud noises, screaming, yelling. I'm like a clam. I shut down. I'm insecure. I'm inadequate. I've got the unrelenting voice that we all have. I'm not good enough. And the worst thing is I have secrets. Because you see, if you come from my family, you come from my house, you learn how to internalize everything and you don't talk about anything. So if someone says to you, hey, Jimmy, how are you doing? Everything's fine. And this is the way I'm raised. But what I can't see is God's keeping me safe and protected through that whole period. God's keeping me protected through my drinking career. Pick up a drink at 13. Step right on a path that goes straight to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, a.k.a. hell. And over the next 16 years of my drinking, full-blown alcoholism and homelessness on the streets of northern New Jersey and lower Manhattan, living that life. You know that life, some of you. A life that my old sponsor always says, one day on the streets is just one day too many. Right? Doing, as Ralph says all the time, the aimless walk. Trying to figure it out. Trying to figure out my life. Dehumanizing, traumatic. I mean, I don't even have enough adjectives to talk about that life. Like I have a basketball made out of glass and I just threw it on the floor and it shatters. That's my life. 25, 25 years old, 26 years old, 27 years old. But God keeps me safe and protected living on the streets. Couldn't see that until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and was shown that. The day I got sober, it looked like this. I walked into a bar to rob it. Well, not rob it, you know, just to borrow some money, you know. And uh, some old guy came up to me and he said, hey, Jimmy, you need to go to Newark Airport 
because they're hiring guys like you. No one's airport, huh? By the way, I think we're going to be a pilot, but uh, that's not the truth. Uh, Newark Airport. Next day, me and two guys, we stole a car and we went to Newark Airport. All three of us are now sober over 36 years. There was an airline that used to hire people like us. People's Express. And the job was hopefully to get the luggage over there onto the plane over there. I go into this little interview and the interview process looked like this. Can you lift the suitcase? Yeah, you're hired. And I'll never forget this day to the day I die. I walked out, sat in a chair, sat down. I could feel the wind blowing through the hole of my soul, dying of something I don't even know I'm dying from, when a complete stranger sat next to me. After a couple of minutes, the stranger said to me, what's your problem? And I spit up my life story on this guy in about 10 minutes. And he said, I have the answer for you. And I said, what's that? And he wrote down the street, this pre-cell phone, pre-beeper days. You know where the street is? Yeah, it's my old neighborhood. Asked me a very important question. Is it possible for you not to take a drink today? I want to drink right now. It's like 10 in the morning. Don't drink and be at this address 7 o'clock tonight. The power of God runs deep. But for the grace of God, at 7 o'clock that night, stone cold sober, standing at this address with my knees knocking, my stomach turning, my mind doing a million and one backflips, telling me all sorts of things. A 1979 Chevy Impala pulls up on me. The stranger's driving a car with a few other strangers, and they pull up on me and roll the window down. They said the most spiritual thing you ever hear in Alcoholics Anonymous, get in the car. And I got in a call with these gentlemen. They took me to my first meeting. It was on March 28th, 1987. I've been with you since. I mean, yeah, yeah, for a little bit, about 18 months. Maybe I overreacted, this AA thing. Yeah, I'm part of a I'm part of a group, plugged in with a bunch of old guys, really old guys. They're like in their 40s, really old guys, you know. Plugged in with these guys and the kindness of strangers, we hear that all the time. These guys had taken care of me, got me under their wing. 12-step calls were a common practice back then, doing all the things we do. I'm 18 months sober, and uh, I go to see my parents, and guess what? I go find my, I, I go in my parents' house, and I find my father dead. He's dead on the floor. Now, I'm programmed at this point, you know, call my sponsor. I call him up. What do I do? Let's pray. I call 911. So I call 911 and we start to pray. First cop shows up in my house, right? Or my parents' house. He's taking down the information. He looks at me, he goes, hey, I don't see you walking the streets anymore. I said, yeah, I don't do that anymore. Take a little bit more information down. Looks at me again, says, matter of fact, I don't even see you drinking in the bars anymore. I said, yep, don't drink anymore. So over 18 months. He goes, how do you do that? I go to this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he started to ask me a bunch of questions. And before you know it, I'm 12-stepping this cop over my dead father's body. Because I know how to do a 12-step call. Because I'm around these guys. And I tell you this story because God shows up when God shows up. Because maybe 10 months ago, 9 months ago, I don't even know. I'm in my home group. I haven't seen that cop since that day. And I get a tap on my shoulder in my home group. And I turn around, it's the cop who's now retired. And he says to me, I've been looking for you. And I said, what's up? And he goes, I just want to let you know, I just celebrated 34 years of sobriety. I've been sober since that day over your father's dead body. God shows up when God shows up. Now, I know I don't have the power to get anyone sober. I don't have the power to get loaded, anyone loaded. But God will always use you without your permission. And I tell the story of my mother just dying not too long ago, three years ago. The power of that. You see, in We Agnostics, it talks about the evidence. The evidence of people who get through the things that they get through because they have faith and belief in the power of God themselves. And I've come to understand for me that listening with my ears, listening with my ears and having that same belief and having that same faith that we can get through any adversity at all. 
because you see, there's a very important question in way agnostics, either God is everything or God either is or he isn't. What's my choice to be? Now the ego wants to say God is everything. But how come I'm still filled with fear at times? How come I have feelings of insecurity? How come I still don't get along with other people? How come I'm still prey to misery and depression? How come those bedevilments still happen in my life? Well, the truth of the matter is, many parts of my sobriety looks like this. Here, God, here's the drink problem, but I'm going to handle the rest of my life. I don't even see how agnostic I could be. But as I sat with this guy, Bill, he started to explain about this path to power. Step two, the path to power. It's a simple decision, just like the third step. All I need to do is open my mind, set aside everything I think I know. Matter of fact, I think he told me something like this. Hey, Jim, when we sit at the kitchen table, bring a snack table. I said, what do I need a snack table for? Because he goes, I'm going to ask you to take everything you think you know and put it on a snack table that's labeled, I'm not sure. And just open your mind. Just open your mind. Are you willing to open your mind? And see, what beats us into a sense of reasonableness is being sick and tired of being sick and tired, of having, as Ralph would like to say, a good whooped ass. So step two really just becomes a simple decision. And it's laid out in this simple attitude. I've read this so many times, I could complicate this chapter with the best of them. But all it's asking me to do is three things, or it's asking me three questions. Am I willing to set aside my old ideas? Now, again, if you go back on page 28, you'll see Roland Hazard having the same conversation with uh, Dr. Young. And on the top of that page, he talks about being a free man. Well, what did he do to become a free man? Well, the first question he had to ask himself, am I willing to set aside my old ideas, my old prejudices, my archaic 1960 Catholic belief system that I'm going to hell for everything I've ever done in my life? Am I willing to set that aside? All right? Because you see, if you're like me, I think my life should look a certain way, right? And since I'm a guy from the streets, I have a really hardcore, real man, John Wayneism kind of viewpoint on life. So I'm driven by a lot of old ideas what a real man is. Am I willing to set that to the side? Am I willing to open my mind and see that there's other ways to get to somewhere, right? Second question he asked me, am I willing to think honestly? Am I willing to get honestly? See, the golden rule of recovery, as we find out in how it works, is rigorous honesty, right? Later on, Holly will talk about the inventory process, but the truth of the question is, there's a question, am I willing to be thorough and honest? Well, it's hard to be honest when you got to be right. See, I always got to be right. Why? Because God forbid I'm not. What will you think of me? The unrelenting voice in my head, right? So am I willing to be honest? Because I can't be honest with you if I'm not honest with myself. And then more importantly, am I willing to search diligently? As I sat with Bill, he talked about the two goals of Alcoholics Anonymous this day. This was just his opinion, kind of my opinion today. First goal is the obvious goal. Don't pick up the first drink no matter what. But the second goal is the goal we all want to attain. And I think that's what today is all about. It's to step into the sunlight of the spirit, to have a spiritual experience, to have a psychic change, to have a personality change, you name it. But it's to get to that place. And if you close your eyes and just visualize this with your mind's eye, what is that place? I do this downstairs in my house all the time with the guys I sponsor. See, there's a glass door at the front of my house. And I think the process of the steps is to walk us out that door into the sunlight of the spirit. Right? But in order to walk out into the sunlight of the spirit, I need to walk into the darkness of my life. I need to walk into the hallway of life. I need to look at things that I'm really trying to avoid my whole life. This visualization that Bill painted for me. That if I want to be free, I got to uncover, discover, and discard the things that are blocking me from God and blocking me from you. This idea, simple idea, in order to get free, 
I got to get out there. And what is out there? I think Bill likes to call it utopia, the perfect place. He didn't want to use that word heaven. It was too extreme. He wanted to use the perfect place, utopia. It's a place of freedom. It's a place where the bondage of self gets removed. It's a place where all the promises in the book really come alive. John Travolta. I know you guys heard this, John Travolta, right? Why do I say John Travolta at this point? Did I just lose my bonkers? Well, you old guys remember the after-school special. ABC used to have an after-school special back in the days. And you would come home from school and, you know, you do your homework in about three minutes. You know, mom, you could smell the food. Mom's cooking in the kitchen. And it was a 4.30 movie every day on ABC, Channel 7 in New York. And this particular movie was called The Boy in a Bubble. And John Travolta had an autoimmune disease that he couldn't get any germs, so he lived in a bubble. And this is so simplistic and so childish and so ridiculous that I'm even saying this, but this is what I think of. That that place that we're trying to get to is we're placed in the bubble, the God bubble. We're safe and protected. We're in a position of neutrality. As Bill says in the 12 and 12, the acid test. Can I stay sober? Can I stay emotionally balanced? And can I live to good purpose when the heavy artillery is coming in and the shit's hitting the fan? Can I be okay in that place? Because most of us can't. Can I stay balanced? And can I stay... So that was the visualization. At the end of We Agnostics, it says one of the most important lines I've ever heard or read. As we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. So as I sat at this kitchen table and started to understand, one, what I'm up against, that one, as Amy beautifully stated, my powerlessness, not only over the drink, but really over everything. Step two is a move towards power. Right? It's about making the decision that I got to chase this power with the desperation of a drowning man, that I need God in my life. I need to come to believe in a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity, the ability to see truth about my drinking, but more importantly, and you read the book 30 years later, the books meet me where I at, the importance of seeing truth about where my life is today. 30, will be 37 years next month, sober. Where do I stand today with God? Where do I stand with everything in my life? So this visualization was so important. So I'm willing. I think it says on page 47, we need to ask ourselves one short question. Do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that uh, there's a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he's willing to believe or is believing, we emphatically ensure him that he's on his way. I'm on my way to what? Freedom. I'm on my way to what? To the sunlight of the spirit. I'm on my way to having a spiritual experience. And I need to participate in this deal. So I need to be willing to do one thing and one thing very importantly. I need to be willing to go into the darkness of my life. And I got to look at these things that I really don't want to look at. And I got to do something that I thought was a weakness. It was really strength in disguise. I need to be vulnerable to another person. I really have to trust this guy called a sponsor. That he's not going to judge me. He's not going to get yelling at me. He's not going to, he's just going to share his experience, strength and hope with me and hold me by the hand. And see, for a tough guy like me, that's really hard to uh, trust. I guess that's the word I'm looking at, trust. But this guy is going to show me a way of life, put me on a path that really goes somewhere, and all I need to do is be willing. Well, you know what? 
I read how it works. Bill wrote a very important paragraph for Dr. Bob. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us had tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go. Absolutely. Why am I not willing to let go? Why am I so afraid to walk into the darkness of my life? Why am I resisting change? Why am I really resisting a life that's beyond my real wildest dreams? I think it comes down to one word. And I believe, and this is my own opinion, a word that will kill more alcoholics than a resentment. And what that word is, is pride. See, my pride is the essence of my self-centeredness. I know better, right? I know, I know, I know, I know better. I know better than my sponsor. I know better than my wife. I know better than everyone, right? I know, I know, no, no. So pride becomes the essence of my self-centeredness. Pride is the thing that leads to procession of every other character defect I have, right? Leads to parade, as it says in the 12 and 12. But more importantly, my pride will always step, play, step into place when I'm in spiritual stagnation, right? The delusion that, um, and here's what happens to a guy like me. I'll justify my sobriety on the fact that I got a sponsor, sponsor a lot of guys, do service work, belong to a home group, hang out with guys like you. But the truth of the matter is I'm not letting go and letting God. I'm still holding on to secrets. It's very easy to hold on to secrets in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's easy to walk into my home group. It's a huge home group on Sunday nights. How you doing, Jim? Everything's fine as the veins are about to explode out of my neck. Because fear is now rooted back in my life. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of stuff. And what happens for a guy like me, why I'm afraid to walk into the darkness of my life, because I become a prisoner of judgment. Right? I start to judge others. I become a prisoner of opinion. I start to become a prisoner of control. And Bill lays it out in that third step. Self, 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 self. hundred forms of fear, hundred forms of self-pity, hundred forms of self-delusion, self-regret, you name it. Self, 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 which all leads to futility and unhappiness. But I can't see it when I'm in the mix. I can't see it when I'm trying to control my life and trying to control your life. Right? So why do I have troubles? Because I can't let go. And I have a mind that is driven by what I think my life should look like. Old ideas. Did an exercise once with my old sponsor. How many times do we say to a newcomer, are you willing to go to any left for victory over alcohol? Yep. Yeah. And their head's like a bobblehead doll. Yep, 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 yep. But do we ever explain what any lens really looks like? Well, we do the same thing. These early chapters, these early pages, especially we agnostics, ask us, begs us to lay aside your prejudice, your old ideas towards what? Let's start with everything. Are you willing to set aside everything to open up your mind, to take a journey into the mystery? Or do I start balking at certain things? Nah, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't know if I want to look at that relationship. Well, I don't know if I want to look at that molestation when I was a child. I don't know if I want to look at. So I start to balk on some of these things. And my mind says, you know, why look? Why look? Right? Odd thing about step three is I got to let go and let God. Right? And Bill lays it out, all the scenarios of how we show up playing God in everyone's life. Right? Page 60 talks about the first requirement, not the first suggestion. The first requirement is that my life run on my will has hardly been a success. Am I convinced of that? I come out of those ABCs. Am I convinced of that? That I'm an alcoholic and my life's unmanageable? Check. That no human power is going to relieve me of this deal? Check. And God could and would if he was sought. Uh, not sure about that one. But what makes me convinced? What makes me get to a place of desperation. Yeah, we can make that joke like Ralph always says, you know, good whoop there. Circumstances, being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Secrets will kill you, that's for sure. Willingness. 
It's the only answer for guys like us. And one thing I can't do for anyone on this call and none of you guys could do for me or you can't do for each other is put willingness in your own heart. Has to be an inside job. The willingness to get out there in the sunlight of the spirit and live this life because the evidence is all around me of people that are doing that. I'm just afraid. I'm, I'm afraid to rip the Band-Aid off and to look at things that I'm embarrassed over that I'm ashamed over. Most alcoholics have shame-based identities. We all walk around with a lot of shame, whether it's not being a good son, not a good sibling, not a good worker, not any, shame, 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 shame. From here to California, I'll give you a list of shame, things that are shameful in my life. So Bill goes through these early pages and I had to go through these early pages and start looking at some of the things I do to try to play God, to try to be the director of life. First thing I do is I put conditions on every relationship I've ever been in. I expect you to make me feel better. I have lived with unhealthy dependency on, let's just say women, parents, others, people with money, to make me feel good. So I play or I lay out a script, right? It's like I wake up every morning and I look at everyone in my life and I hand out a script, right? My wife, my kids, my ex-wife, my, my job, my friends, AA members, here's the script. Follow my script and I'll be okay, right? And the minute one of you guys don't follow the script, you know, we call that a script violator. You know, I'm pissed off. I walk around with anger. I got a grievance which really leads me into another problem I got what Bill talks about is, you know, nothing's my fault, right? And if you're walking around with anger, you're walking around with uh, resentment, you're walking around with any kind of grievance, I do three things all the time. First of all, I look out there. Has to be something out there that makes me feel this way. So I blame others, right? The other thing I do is a real art. I take everything personal. Why me? Don't you know I'm the great Jimmy A from New Jersey? Right? And then I live under this delusion. Another delusion. A lot of delusions going on here. I live under this delusion that I can control and manage life to my liking. I'm doing a workshop with a bunch of my guys. Well, starting this week. And we're reading the book. We read all sorts of books in do workshops, make up stuff, just to really peel the onion back and look deeper and deeper and deeper into this deal called alcoholism. And what this gentleman says in his book is the heart of 12-step recovery is the heart of 12-step recovery. Quit playing God. Now that sounds easy, huh? Quit playing God. 12-step recovery is about freeing yourself from playing God. What does it mean to play God? It means living under the delusion that life is controllable. It means constantly struggling to maintain the illusion, the lie that we tell ourselves that you are controlling it. It means lying to yourself all day, every day, insisting that with enough effort, I can get life to do whatever it is I wanted to do. Even reading this, I want to throw up right now because I fall into this trap so much. It means having to mask your failure at controlling life by blaming others. Your parents, your spouse, your children, you know, you add to the list for your failure. It has to be someone else's fault for the way I feel. It means having to dull the pain of failure with booze, pills, TV, food, overwork, delusion, whatever the spree is, 30-something years separated from my last drink, there'll always be a spree to make me feel better about something, right? It means spiraling, spiraling into the madness of delusional thinking and addictive behaviors that make sense only to a mind drunk on the insanity that this time it's going to be different. This time, pornography will be different. 
This time, eating a half a gallon of ice cream after dinner is going to be different. This time, you know that we all have that this time thinking at times. So I got to take a look at these grievances. I got to take a look at these resentments. I got to take a look at all this anger and these control things. I played it directly because I know better. God forbid I don't know better. And as it says in that thing, I've created a stage character to try to control everything. And see, what I found about me in step three is that, you know, I'm living under this delusion. How can I allow power or God work in my life when I am God, when I am power? Something has to happen. There has to be a force that has to happen. And what that force is, is what Holly's going to talk about, an inventory process. That's going to start to uncover, discover, and discard the things that stand between me and God and me and you. The wedges that we have put into place, the walls of alibis, the walls of excuses, the walls of all the stuff that you're not coming in and I'm not coming out. And we'll play the game, the facade, that everything is wonderful in life. Meanwhile, I'm dying. I'm dying. And if I'm under the delusion that I think I'm not going to drink again after a long period of sobriety, well, then I'm not going to enough meetings because I've heard more than enough people with 20 plus years of sobriety drink again. So this decision sounds like such a simple decision. The decision to what? Turn my will and my life over to care of God? That's one way of looking at it. The decision to, to, uh, to work the rest of the steps, four through nine, that's another way of looking at it. But the way I have always looked at it is the decision to walk into the darkness of my life. To quit playing God. Why? Second shortest line in the book. It didn't work. So this simple concept that he talks about. What is this concept? Well, God's going to be the boss. God's in charge. We're giving back the job to God. God's going to be the director of my life. Very simple, right? I'm willing to do that. Now, God's the principal. Where are the agents? And as most of you know, the agent works for, for the principal. Taylor Swift, she's kind of a name we hear lately. She's the principal. She's got a lot of agents do a lot of things for her, right? They work for the principal. Well, in this scenario, in step three, we work for God. And God gives every one of us the same job. You know what that job is? Help his kids. Help his kids. Pretty simple. Help his kids. And then it says that God's the father, we're the child. Now, in most good families and most healthy families, and, you know, eventually my old man, but eventually what we find out or what we see is that most good fathers take care of their children. So in this simple concept that Bill is painting in our picture, he's asking us to do three things. One, put God back in the director's chair, work for God, and that job means go help his kids. And if I do those two simple things, God will take care of me. So on page 63 in the book, it really gives us, you know, some great promises. When this position, when we take, when we sincerely take a position, all sorts of remarkable things will follow. We had a new employer, God. And as much as I crawl and grab and want to take that position back, the moment I take this position, and for me, it's not a one-shot deal. This is kind of like a day-by-day -day deal, hour-by-hour -hour deal, sometimes minute-by-minute -minute deal, where I got to continue to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And since he's all-powerful, he provided what I need, not what I want. If we keep close to him and perform his work well, if I pray and meditate and write inventory eventually and do his job of helping others, Established on such footing, we become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. 
as we felt new power for when we enjoyed peace of mind, we discovered we could face life successfully. You know, fear of here, there, hereafter is removed. We were reborn. It is by dying, we become reborn. And the death of self has to happen. And the only way that the death of self is going to happen for a guy like me is to walk into that dark hallway and uncover, discover, and discard the things that are blocking me from God. One of the greatest readings, I've read this a million and one times, comes out of Daily Reflections. If you look at May 1st, the second paragraph in there, it says, it's the side of myself that I refuse to look at that rules me. The secrets, the lies, the dishonesty, the deceit. I must be willing to look at that dark side in order to heal my heart, uh, heal my mind and my heart. Because that's the road to freedom. That's the road. That's the path. I must walk into darkness to find the light and walk into fear to find peace. See where I come from, the way the old timers used to put that is like this, Alcoholics Anonymous is like a big bonfire. And most people in AA are just walking around the fire, but eventually the fire is gonna burn out. But you see, if you really wanna be free, if you really wanna grow, if you really wanna have a relationship with God and with each other, you need to walk, your, you need to walk through that fire and get your ass burnt and feel the uncomfortability of change. And again, thank God I was willing to do that on this particular day, right? And as I got on that, my knees with this man and held his hands, I was very uncomfortable doing that. I never prayed with anyone. I was shocked that he knew this prayer and I had to read it out of the book. But I could tell you what happened in that moment. As I felt his hands in my hands, I could feel the spirit come into me, his spirit. Or maybe it was just my spirit with the with the cloth of the robe just starting to fall off. And when I got off my knees, I was willing to go in. I was willing to walk into that darkness. I was willing to be a free man. And as it says at the end of We Agnostics, as I started to walk through that hallway of darkness towards the glass door, I started to do the things what all the other speakers are going to talk about today. Uncover, discover, and discard. Bring the walls down. There's a power greater than me that can restore me to sanity. I just need to be willing to walk the walk. Right? As I did that inventory, I had the most powerful, unbelievable, original fifth step ever. I think we all have that first step experience, uh, fifth step experience with our first one. I was offered a consideration. This guy, Bill, used to give me a lot of considerations. He wasn't looking for answers. He was just, here, think about this. Bring this into prayer. Bring this into, just bring it into some reflection. And what he said to me on this particular day was this. Jimmy, do you look at the people in your life? Your family, your friends, your children, your wife, your ex-wife, uh, your co-workers, your neighbors, AA members. Do you look at those people? Do you look at those people and the situations in your life, the hard times you've been through, the living a life on the streets like you did, the the alcoholism, the, the every situation, all the you know, all your medical problems, everything, every situation in your life, and the circumstances of your life. All the things that have happened to you because of your decision-making. Have you looked at the people in your life, the situations in your life, the circumstances in your life, through the lens of a character defect, or through the eyes of God? And as I started to walk through that hallway of darkness, I started to get, as we hear quite often, a new pair of glasses. I started to see things in a different light. I could start feeling the arms of God wrapped around me. I knew I was okay. But I'm very clear that I only have a daily reprieve contingent upon my spiritual condition, which might feel good right now, might not feel good tomorrow. That this thing we do, nonstop till the day I die. 
So do I look at people, situations and circumstances with love and tolerance and, and compassion and forgiveness? Or am I still a person of judgment and scorn and anger and fear and adequacy? What story do I buy into? It's been laid out for me on how to get free. It's my responsibility to get on that path and do the work that the rest of the speakers today are gonna to talk about. So I think that's all I got. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everyone.